This is Views Over the City, produced and presented by Ian Davidson. Hello, I'm Ian Davidson, a reward specialist with over 15 years' experience in reward and financial services in the City of London. Welcome to this, the fourth podcast in the series Views Over the City. In this episode, we'll be looking at banking remuneration, particularly in the light of the report of the UK Parliamentary Committee. Much hot air signifying nothing, or an agenda for change. That'll be followed by discussion from the MM&K survey on executive pay, which had some very interesting findings. Strong analytics is the next part of the podcast, one of my favourite subjects. We'll be looking at its increasing use in HR and beyond, with particular reference to its use in reward. The next item is very special. An interview with the creativity and innovative guru Peter Cook, whose new book, The Music of Business, is proving to be a must-have volume for business leaders. Finally, I'll be looking at reward trends and issues in the Middle East, both similarities and differences on the reward agenda. And just a reminder, I publish a popular and influential reward blog at iandavidson.me, which picks up many of the themes in this podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Our first item is on the report of the Parliamentary Commission on Banking, which was published recently. Its findings were unexceptional and very much has been expected. Did it add up to any real value to the debate? Sadly, I think not. However, let's have a look at their main recommendations. Well, first of all, and the item that seemed to have attracted the biggest media publicity, was jail for bankers who indulge in reckless misconduct. Now, what exactly do we mean by reckless misconduct? It's one of those things like pornography that we know it when we see it but often we see it with hindsight. How do we know at the time that decision is made if it is reckless or not? Is it good risk management? Has it been properly managed? Until after the event, it's often difficult to tell. And when a big bet works, everyone's happy. When the big bet fails, is that reckless misconduct? As always with these things, it asks more questions than it answers. The second recommendation that again attracted a certain amount of attention was the idea that bonuses in banking should be deferred for up to 10 years. Well, there's two major problems with this, which are a paradox. First of all, it reduces the net present value of the bonus to the individual to close to zero. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the net present value is what is something worth to me today if it's paid in the future? Now, if you've promised me £100,000, but it's going to be paid in 10 years, I may, get, I may lose it if it gets clawed back, I may lose it if the bank for which I'm working doesn't perform particularly well, and it's often paid in shares, which have an unknown and uncertain value. So what's it worth to me today? I was talking to a couple of bank traders in the city recently who told me that they're, in their view, any bonus that's deferred over even three years 
unpaid in shares or stock, or COCOs, conditional bonds, is actually worth close to nothing today because there's absolutely no certainty they'll receive it, let alone it having any value. So one has to ask, what is the point? The other downside of the proposal for deferral is that the value, funnily enough, of the award could be enormous. Because if share prices do rise, and they do have a tendency over the long term, and with dividends paid as well, the amount that actually paid out from a deferred bonus could be absolutely huge. Now, on one hand, that shows a really close alignment with shareholder interest, but on the other, wait till the politicians see the size of the numbers. All hell will break loose. You can't win on this one, but deferral over 10 years certainly doesn't seem to work for me. I mean, who thinks over 10-year financial horizons outside your mortgage and your pension? I suppose the answer is we should start viewing bonuses as long-term payments, but that gets away from the incentive value of the whole scheme. Certainly not an ideal answer. You're listening to Ian Davidson. One comment that I did agree with the Parliamentary Commission was on the issues of culpability for auditors and credit rating agencies. I think it's fair to say that the auditors were either in bed with the banks or certainly asleep on the job when they audited some of the banks' balance sheets and profit and loss accounts. Clearly, there are major issues of accountability around the accounting companies. And in addition, the credit rating agencies came in for some stick as well. What were they doing? Clearly, they were taking credit instruments and rating them incorrectly. And again, conflict of interest here. They were paid for all the rating that they did by the very people on whom they were doing the rating. So who's going to annoy, for want of a better term, their best client? There are still questions to be answered around there, and perhaps still a disaster waiting in the wings. And, talking of culpability, I saw very little mention of the role of of politicians and regulators who are supposed to oversee our financial system with their so-called light touch. No surprises there, then. No chance of the pot and the kettle both being called black. It is a pity that our politicians and the regulators didn't take more responsibility for what happened during the financial crisis, instead of wandering around spending huge amounts of money trying to find someone to blame. Perhaps they should look in the mirror. So, will the recommendations of the Parliamentary Commission make any difference? Sadly, I'm afraid not. As the UK's CIPD survey, Building Trust in the City, clearly showed, it's all about culture and behaviour, and that is going to take a very long time. And until you get the culture and the leadership right, there's no point tinkering around with pay or regulation. No point whatsoever. The bank leadership have got to take leadership and change the culture to make their behaviours more acceptable to both themselves, to the public, to the customers and the other stakeholders. This is Views Over the City with Ian Davidson. The next section of my podcast is going to be on executive pay and it's based largely on the results of the MM&K executive pay survey that was presented in June 2013. I think the first thing that drew my attention was the identification of a shift from current cash bonuses into deferred bonuses, which is something we've seen previously in banking. 
but now is occurring more and more frequently with executives in the FTSE 100. What does this do? Well, it reduces the current year cash bonus and pushes it out, if you like, into future years. But what it does do is make it quite difficult to assess current year payments. Part of the difficulty is due to the way that LTIPs are structured, LTIPs being long-term incentive plans. Generally speaking, when they're granted to an executive, they can be expressed as a maximum payout, or maximum payment, if you like. And then the second level is the expected value. That is what uh, the board or enumeration committee expect an executive to get, which is all fair and dandy. Now what happens is that most LTIPs have performance conditions attached and achieving certain performance conditions decides how much of the LTIP is being vested. But you then have to add on to that changes in share price and dividend growth over the period, which is normally three, sometimes five years. And what we've seen happening is, in good years, yes, the percentage vesting has increased. In bad years, the percentage vesting has decreased. But what we tend to find is that in poor years, the dividends and share price increases in the future are much larger. So although you can do less well in performance terms, your actual payment can be much higher. And MMNK used the example of the difference between the 2011 and 2012 payouts of 41%, despite the fact that the 2009 payment had a much, much lower maximum and expected value. So what we're seeing is, although it's arguably aligned with shareholder return, because obviously increases in share price are good for shareholders, it does mean that people are being rewarded twice, once for their performance conditions and then again for the increase in share price. That may be appropriate, it may not, but what it does mean is it's very difficult to work out the value to an executive of what a particular LTIP is worth. What is very clear, however, is that CEO total enumeration, the amount realised and the average of the FTSE 100, was an increase of 10% to 4.25 million. Yes, that's 4.25 million, with by far the biggest chunk of that being long-term incentives, the next smallest chunk being cash bonuses, and then you've got the mix of others and pension, and finally base salary, which in 2012 was eight, with an average of £861,594. So you move from a base salary of roughly £900,000 to a total remuneration of £4.25 million. One of the interesting outputs from the MM&K survey is that the bigger the company, the higher the pay, but also that the increase in total remuneration for CEOs of FTSE 100 companies has risen much faster than the uh, total return and the FTSE index. So how long can this carry on going? And what are the long-term trends in executive remuneration? I think the uh, jury is out on that one. We know of the social pressure to reduce pay and particularly the differentiation between what a CEO earns and what the average salary is in a company. But there's absolutely no sign that this social and political pressure is having an impact on payments to CEOs. Is that a good thing or not? I'll leave that to you. 
we have to put this in some sort of context. The average market capitalisation of a FTSE 250 is about £17 billion. CEO total comp is round about £4.5 million, which means the CEO costs 0.027% of market capital. Hardly a huge amount for the guy, or very occasionally girl, driving the huge oil tanker that is a modern FTSE 100 company. In addition, it must be said that CEOs of FTSE 100 companies do have a major impact on share price. We see what happens when Stephen Hester, the excellent CEO of the of RBS, was, to put it politely, pushed out of the way by the Treasury. RBS's share price fell by over 7%, partly because the market doesn't like surprises, but so-so because uncertainty is not good and changes in CEO send out signals to the market that something is wrong. I have to say I'm largely neutral on the question of, of CEO pay. I think, largely speaking, and on the balance, they probably deserve what they earn. It's a very high-profile job and subject to lots of knocks, as again Stephen Hester's brief career at RBS showed. It's a very difficult job and very few people want to do it. In fact, statistics are beginning to show that uh, senior executives would prefer to move into private equity than become a CEO of a listed company because of the profile and because of the publicity and the attacks that come from all sorts of quarters. It's certainly not a position for the faint of heart, although it may be a position for those looking to fill long pockets. And of course, it's not, it's not all bad news. I noticed a statistic from HMRC that show the top 1% of taxpayers in the UK, as an example, are now paying 30% of the tax take on pay-as-you-earn. So you start knocking that top 1%, you're going to knock a big hole in tax revenues, something I think the Chancellor, Geoffrey, is well aware of. What is clear is that the government's attempt to give simplified figures for senior executive earnings just is not going to work. They're too complex, too tied up in conditionality and proportionality. So giving one figure for a CEO's earnings is just going to be totally misleading, either grossly understating, which is the most likely, or overstating what a CEO is going to earn. This is a complex area, and the media and politicians have got to get their heads around some of these issues, rely on the experts to tell them what the money actually means. Until that happens, we're going to keep seeing the same political posturing and media attacks, which are grossly misinformed, unreliable, and based on very shaky statistics. One of these days, we'll find a solution. You're listening to the best Ian Davidson. This is Views Over the City with Ian Davidson. The next subject is one of my favourites. It's called Strong Analytics. And it's all about the way that we present data in HR and in reward. Now, I'm going to split this section into three. The first one is called Chicken and Eggs. And this is about how we look at data and theory. The second is about the danger of averages. And finally, a little bit about measurement. Now, chicken and eggs, which come first. There's a lot of debate going on at the moment, particularly in the areas of big data. We've got lots of data. Now, the question is, and it's a very important question, do we look at the data and then come up with a theory or a practice and test it? Or do we come up with a theory or a practice and then see if the data fits? 
I actually don't think there's a right answer to this question. You can't really apply scientific methodology to big data in the HR field. Or perhaps you can, but you take a very long time to test your hypothesis out. And that is one thing none of us in HR and Ward have, is time. So you can either look at the data and say, ah, that looks interesting, perhaps I should try XYZ. Or, even better, there's some exceptions to the normal data here. Let's investigate and see why this team is a particularly good performer or that team is a particularly bad producer. So, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? It's a subject to which we will return, I suspect. Second is, again, one of my favourite subjects, the dangers of averages. And I wrote a a blog post about this on my blog, iandavidson.me, that uh, was very, very popular. And what it talks about is the fact that using averages produces poor results. For example, if my boss says to me, Ian, what's paid uh, inflation going to be in the US next year? I can turn around to him and say, well, uh, on average, it should be about 3.4%. And of course, on average, I will be wrong. Whereas if I say to my boss, well, there's a 50% possibility it's going to be 3.4%, but there is a 10% possibility it could be 4% and we should budget accordingly, that is a much more intelligent answer and, of course, much more likely to be correct. I personally use a Monte Carlo simulation approach to generate a large number of trials on uh, properly distributed data so we can see what the potential outcomes and probability are. You'll learn a lot more about this if you read my blog post. And I have to say, I'm not a statistician, although I'm a relatively good mathematician. But the use of statistics and thinking about probability is a real game-changer for HR. It also helps us get over the black swan problem, those outliers which are supposed to be very rare, but in fact occur far more often than we think. And it prepares us in our mindset to think, actually, something nasty, or perhaps something very good could happen, And we should prepare for that accordingly. The final part of my strong analytics discussion is around measurement. And I think while there's a lot of data around, are we really applying it well and appropriately? I'm a great believer in looking at the data and coming up with strong business metrics. It is very important that in HR and reward, we're able to turn around to the business and say, because of X intervention or Y intervention, we achieved A or B. For example, when I work in executive reward, a number of consultancies are now looking at the correlation between total shareholder return and executive pay. Are the ups and downs of both those figures correlated? Clearly, it's in just about everybody's interest if they are strongly correlated. And it's a good way of saying to shareholders, yes, you're paying maybe £4 million to the chief executive, but look at the TSR you've got over the same period. And when times are bad, we can show that the the chief executive's remuneration drops to the same sort of value as uh, the TSR. So as shareholders are losing value, so is our CEO, CFO and those who work in the executive suite. So applying measurement appropriately and properly can be a very powerful tool in our discussions with business. It's been used for a while with sales incentives. The more the sales, the bigger the incentive. But we need to extend that. Uh, Some companies use balanced scorecards. Well, it's possible to draw uh, correlations between the various elements on the scorecard and how reward is made so that we can prove that by achieving a certain element in our scorecard, it's reflected in the makeup of reward. 
And this is a subject I shall be returning to, um, both on my blogs and on future podcasts, because it's not enough to have the data, it's not enough to analyse the data. It is essential that we apply the data and show the business the value added that we, as reward and HR professionals, are making. It's a subject we will definitely return to in due course. The next segment of the show is probably one of the most exciting that I've ever done in a podcast. I'm talking to the innovation and creativity guru, Peter Cook. He runs the Academy of Rock and Human Dynamics. He's an expert in his field. He was a former MBA tutor on the Open University's highly successful creativity and innovation course. And he is, of course, a very well-known writer, having recently published The Music of Business, which met much critical acclaim. The man is an expert and thought leader in his field. I'm very grateful to Peter for taking the time to talk to me. Your book, The Music of Business, Business Excellence, Fused with Music, seeks to show the lessons that business can learn from music. What are your key messages on this theme? Well, through my life, I've been accused of being a a polymath if people are being kind, or a psychopath if they're being unkind, because I have three loves, science, business and music. In The Music of Business... I've simply drawn parallel lessons from sort of high-level business themes and drawn the same lessons from the world of music. The lessons actually go down a little better, I find, from the world of music. An example would be the idea of dissonance. In music, uh, dissonance is when notes kind of collide in an interesting or sometimes difficult way. But you can make beautiful music out of, out of dissonance. Uh, the beginning of the Rolling Stones song, Painted Black, has a dissonant note, and there are lots of examples through classical music, rock music, where people use dissonance to advantage. At work, dissonance is when people have a very agreeable meeting and everyone nods, and then they go and moan about each other in the toilets afterwards. So dissonance, actually, people could learn a lot from how to make dissonance profitable at work, because dissonance at work costs millions of pounds every year through just not going for a synthesis of ideas, of just laying out positions and just having conflict, which is not that helpful. So there's a lesson, a parallel lesson from music, and there are lots of these lessons in the book The Music of Business, which uh, I have to say is online at Kindle and also a very good uh, paper read. You're an expert on creativity in business. Why do you think organisations fail to be creative in the current economic climate? Well, some people believe and tell me often that creativity got us into this recession. Uh, I'm afraid they're wrong. Creativity did not cause this recession. Nobody says that creative people have to be reckless or thoughtless and just gamble. Good creativity in business is the sort of creativity that turns into innovation, sustainable innovation rather than just next week's fad. So creativity is different than gambling in my view. We need mindful creativity. More of the same type of thinking will not actually get us out of the recession. So we actually desperately need more creativity, but people are frightened of it because of what they think happened with the recession. Um, On an optimistic note, I'm working at the moment for a pharmaceutical company that's taken us away for four days to use creativity to, to develop some sustainable, decent, ethical innovations to take them on the journey into the future. 
But in general, I think the, the human condition in these things is not necessarily to learn. We may, if, if we're not clever, in 10 or 15 or 20 years' time, launch ourselves into yet another boom and bust cycle. The history of mankind teaches us that we aren't learning organisations, actually. Where do you have your best creative ideas and moments? Ah, well, when I have them, it's easy to describe, but to, to then tell people that they must do the same thing is difficult because I think in, that creativity is very much an individual choice. But often extremes work. In the previous book I wrote, Sex, Leadership and Rock and Roll, I laid out a number of themes of these extremes. Some people, for example, need to be isolated without music, without interruption. They'd like their own space uh, where they can dream up ideas other people get their ideas in conversation with others. Now, that's not just the introvert-extrovert dimension, but some people do need isolation, and the, the opposite extreme is also true. Uh, some people need, need lots of time to have their ideas and to creep up on them and to incubate and improve and things like that. And other people really type A personalities, and I am both of those, actually. I really sometimes get creative when I appear to have run out of time. So I find that actually sometimes being pressured for me is just the thing I need to do what I need. I know lots of people who find pressure absolutely hopeless as an ideal. So you need that sort of incubation time. So there are no standards. I personally write books late at night when, when everyone's out of the way, but I love being in contact with lots of people. So I'm a strange person that I've learned over time to sort of get creativity from wherever it comes in the world. The, the trick move, I think, for people is to find out what works for you and just keep working at that. And that can be done simply by self-observation. Think of a time when you had an idea. Were you alone with people? What, what was it like? You know, were, were you stimulated? Were you sort of isolated? Just work out those things that work for you and then just plan to do them more often, I think, is the individual choice. You're passionate about your subject, clearly, yet passion appears to be sadly lacking in most businesses, even in advertising, and certainly in customer delivery. Why do you think that is? Mm, I'm on my soapbox here. Passion, actually, I think, in corporate life has been reduced to slogans, you know, mission statements on walls and things urging people to be positive, to be engaged. I think people don't need signs to tell them to be engaged. In fact, it's almost sometimes counterproductive to tell people what they have to do. You never go into a pub and find out that you're supposed to be engaged. You learn quickly by the sort of culture that exists. So people have passion, not slogans. Structure is partly responsible at work, I think, where people are segmented into roles, and that actually takes out some of the initiative. People also at work play their part by not extending themselves. So the organisation's partly responsible, but if people think it's better to keep your head down and not bring your brain to work, then you know, there's a collusion going on. Many of our organisations these days discourage initiative. And in a climate where jobs are short, people don't need that much encouragement to stop bringing initiative to work. So part of the responsibility uh, for, for this lies with HR people by codifying everything you have to do, which actually just drives out the space for initiative. So I would argue that HR people ought not to nail down everyone's damn job and try and sort of leave a little bit of free space. It's what Charles Handy and I agree, is sort of having a bit of 
uh, you know, space to be a free radical, but not too much space, because that you know organisations are supposed to do things that people want. So this is not an art gallery either, uh, but create the expectation where there's a bit of free space for people to bring their brain, body, and dare I say it, their soul to work. I've got a great example of Yale uh, who are, uh, have managed to squeeze this out to their ultimate disadvantage. I think Yale are almost about to go out of business. They have codified work so that the people on the phone cannot actually do anything else other than follow a script. And they're losing masses of business because of that. That's a good answer, Peter. My next question follows on nicely. As most of the listeners to this podcast are reward or HR professionals, Given the high level of social and political concern, particularly around high reward, what can we learn from the music business where big money is not uncommon? Ah, I'm going to mildly disagree with you there, because big money is only common, in my experience, in the music business at the very top of it. Um, a friend of mine, Bernie Tormey, who played for Ozzy Osbourne, and he's not the only one. Lots of people sort of um, who are relying on... Uh, perhaps less great management, often don't get paid so quickly. And my other friend, Bill Nelson, is still waiting for some money from EMI from about 1976. <laughs> so actually, uh, there's a myth about you know, celebrity wages through the music business. Indeed, the Rolling Stones are doing all right. But actually, artists generally are exploited in the same way that there's exploitation you know, around businesses of using smaller people and, and encouraging them to work for no money and things like that. The point, however, for HR professionals is that money is a Hertzberg dissatisfier. In other words, double people's wages. They're not going to work twice as hard for twice as long. If they do, it might last a week. In fact, three months later, they're going to ask for more wages. So money is the route to... Uh, simply wage inflation actually I think HR people do understand that but of course they have to pay people what they think is the going rate I like rock and roll because it spells R&R &R. reward and recognition thanking people is a much larger and longer lasting satisfier if the wages are crap that won't replace a bad wage but if the money's good enough then think about recognition strategies. I think HR people do not think enough about the other R of R&R. &R. And I think that's, yeah, the research seems to bear this out, that doing all the other things, career advancement, sense of responsibility, letting people put themselves into work where it matters, are all more long-lasting satisfiers. Uh, they cost very little. Shaking someone's hand is cheap compared to a wage. Um, so we focus too much on the reward R of, of R&R, in my view. What's the one piece of advice you would offer to someone working in HR today, or possibly even starting in HR today, following your, your earlier comments? Well, part of my life was sitting on the board of, of the CIPD Council for many years, and I've got three pieces of advice, because I used to bang on about this endlessly, and I think it's very applicable to anyone entering the profession, because they don't have to repeat the same mistakes, they can learn fresh. I think HR people mustn't get stuck in the, the sort of uh, ghetto of HR. What you need to do is learn the language of business, which is money, so learn the language of finance and learn business language, do your kind of MBA. Don't get stuck just in a sort of narrow language of HR. Secondly, keep the HR jargon out of the workplace as far as possible. Speak in the language of business, 
don't say we've got to leverage our core competencies in our chosen markets so that we can all you know advantage ourselves through emotional intelligence and you know, you know sort of customer engagement it doesn't mean anything you know say we want to get better um, and thirdly, learn not business, but learn the business, the business you're in. Go into the business. So many HR people I worked in said, oh, the business doesn't like us. And they sat in their offices and they're never going to get the business to like them if they don't go out and ask daft questions. If they're not a chemistry graduate working in a chemistry business, they will make mistakes. People, technical people in a business, I worked in pharmaceuticals, senior people, they have sort of Nobel Prizes, they will forgive HR people or anyone for not understanding their world of science. They don't expect you to be a better scientist, otherwise you'd be doing their job. But they will not forgive you for not trying to understand their business. And that's when you don't leave the HR department. You don't go and say, what are you doing? How can I help? They're the sorts of things I think that great HR people do all the time. Social media is making very large changes to the way we carry out our day-to-day -day activities. How do these changes aid cre creativity in business, Peter? Well, one thing that social media does do is it allows you to crash into all sorts of differing opinions all the time, for good or bad, actually. So that dissonance thing, yeah, you, you, people don't know you. They say hor horrifying things from a different perspective. You, you meet a brain scientist or a sociologist or a... Uh, computer geek and they just tell you what they think they haven't got any way to sort of say hello first so social media actually produces this great diversity of thinking because we're suddenly connected with customers and other world views the great thing about social media therefore you can use it to connect with your customers and find out what their unfulfilled needs are the things that even maybe they don't know so great companies are using this to replace their R&D at zero cost, you know, because the customers actually probably know what the next big thing is if you help them to do that. However, like all things, social media can be a big waste of time. There's that old quote that 50% of marketing is a waste of, mar of money. The question is which 50%? I think it applies possibly to social media. Maybe that 80% of social media is a waste of time. The question is which is the 20% that counts? I've become actually rather good at social media uh, and I think I do know which things are worthwhile and which are not and I've noticed through talking at meetings with people that people haven't got a clue. They think you get on Twitter and just spray something out at someone or you say something on LinkedIn and it's going to work. So uh, part of my business uh, through my son is helping people get the best out of social media so he's got an offshoot called social dynamics where we stop people wasting 80% of their time on social media but I think it's a difficult thing and rock and roll has really helped me because I, I find it easy to put a message on Twitter in 140 characters that means something whereas most people have only just begun the sentence. HR seems to be going through a lack of confidence at the moment what is HR doing wrong that's causing business to further turn its back on the value that can be added by the profession? Well, I think part of the answer to that goes back to what you asked earlier about what can HR to do to sort of get uh, in, into the customer's mind. It's learning business, learning the language of business, being real about it. So a few HR people I've met over the years, having been in the CIPD and worked in HR for quite a while, some HR people, this is a few, they think that HR is the only point of the business. It simply is not. 
business is the main point of business and HR needs to understand that it's there to make business more effective and more efficient. And that sounds like being a servant. But servant leadership doesn't mean being servile. You know, there's a huge difference between serving someone well and being you know, kicked around on the ground. So HR needs to be tough, but it needs to actually learn how to couch its, uh, its advice in, in ways that people will get. So I'm not advocating that HR becomes servile. I'm advocating that HR becomes like punk rock HR. I wrote a book called Punk HR, which actually can be available to anyone on your blog for free. I'm giving it away. It's a free small book. And it's how to make a genuinely a difference in HR. And it says, you don't have to pogo to read the book. So it's about simplicity, keeping it simple, keeping it brief, so brevity, and keeping it real, keeping it authentic. And I think there's three words, brevity, simplicity, and authenticity, that we would be clues to the answer to your question. What are the key activities for personal brand marketing and social media today? Well, the jargon from my friend Adrian Fern and the professor at UCL is reciprocity. Actually, Adrian doesn't speak in jargon either. Uh, but the, the term that HRP will bandy about is reciprocity. It's what uh, networkers call giver's gain. If you give, you gain. You don't always, but, you know, if you take all the time from people, uh, you may not get anything back. So if you, re if you share people's tweets or share the lovers, some people say on Twitter, eventually the boomerang does come back following the Ralph Harris model and people will actually start uh, giving stuff back to you. So it, it, not in a cynical way, though. If you, if you authentically, and I randomly tweet stuff that I just like, I don't care who the people are, I randomly tweet stuff that I think is good, and without particular care of whether I've done enough tweets for that person this week, and sometimes people I don't know. If you want to build the, you know, the sort of... Uh, sort of uh, the, your Twitter sort of uh, social media sort of bush bigger then you, I think it's good not to be so consistent with uh, doing things for others. You just give lots of random acts of kindness. Uh, genuinely given, eventually you get things back. I think that's a, a very simple message of reciprocity. I think also in social media, because you haven't got the 90% of sort of face-to-face, -face, you have to use the punk HR thing really well. Keep your message simple. Keep it brief, literally on Twitter, 140 characters is not enough to do anything much that's good. And be, be a real person. Don't try and fake it to make it. You, you can get found out on social media. So my brand is really about mixing music and business. I tweet stuff on music just for fun some of the time. And then sometimes I'll tweet heavy-duty business stuff. I think it probably confuses some of my people. They don't know when I'm having a laugh and when I'm being serious. But hey-ho, you know, you've got to be yourself. So, uh, you know, the punk rock HR mentality is very good on social media. Don't try to control the messages too much. PR people and HR people who do PR are often trying to control the world outside. I'm afraid you can't. Your brand is what uh, other people say about you when you're not in the room. So when you're on Twitter, of course, what that means is 
what they tweet about that you don't notice is what your brand is, not what you think it is. So if you try and control the horizontal and vertical of everything, you know, that's you won't get engagement for people. So I think you've got to have a bit of fun on on these social media without that. You know, you don't have to put up loads of pictures of your cat, though, to be on Facebook. Uh, you know, so, you know, big companies in HR, you don't have to have an HR cat to kind of, uh, although it might help, actually, <laughs> to, uh, you know, to sort of make your organisation seem cuddly. Why is personal branding so important today, Peter? Goodness me, what a, what a tough question. Let's start from geography. Or is it sex? I'm not sure. There are simply a lot more people on the planet. I looked at some statistics about the growth of mankind over the last 100 years, and the graph has gone up and up almost exponentially. So actually, simply, there are so many more people on the planet, and they're all connected to one another. 100 years ago, we didn't have to have a brand because we knew 30 people in the village. We now know 30,000 people in the global village. Simply knowing who people are, I find is quite difficult with the sort of people I, I talk all over the world with people. And they, they're called, you know, sexy HR gal. And I have no idea who they are when I meet them because I can't read their avatar online with my glasses these days, which you can't see on the audio. So if someone approached me the other day, hey, I'm, I'm, the, I'm Deb Star, and I've only, only met her on Twitter. And I had to, she said, I've got your book on my, by my bedside cabinet. I said, that's really nice. I said, and I had to ask her to remind her, don't you know me? I said, well, I've got 4,000 Twitter followers and we've never met. And I can't see your picture on the thing. So, you know, it's really difficult when we connect with people. We don't actually meet face to face. Now I know Deb Starr like my best friend. But previously she was a Twitter avatar. So more people on the planet combined with the fact we have more people to manage our message with, uh, combined with the fact we only share this 7% of ourselves online rather than 90%, we share text and, and syntax. So we really don't know some of the people that we talk to because we never actually shook their hand or had a drink with them. I think that just makes it much more difficult to get your message out there. And if you're using social media, your personal brand is reduced to this 7% of communication that's the words and the, perhaps the pictures if you have a picture. But basically, and there are some problems, I think, for recruitment. My wife's been trying to get a job uh, to return to work recently and the recruitment agencies all, to a man or woman, put an advert out there. They say, we want a highly motivated team player that's prepared to work alone. So they want a gregarious person who's actually sad. They want everything. And actually, the market has worked this out. So everyone's CV is identical. So recruitment, unfortunately, has been reduced to this word fit. And you know, some people then fake it to make it. And they put all the words in that they are a very lonely but highly gregarious team player who's comfortable working in a thriving atmosphere or comfortable working for nothing. And blah, 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 blah. And everyone just plays a silly game with one another. So I think, you know, successful people who have a personal brand get that real thing really right and say actually I'm a bit miserable but I'll work jolly hard for you what do you want so I think personal branding is because the world is so busy and we need to work really hard and personal brand isn't saying you're everything to everyone it's what you're good at and possibly what you're not good at 
I am hopeless working with people that don't try hard. I'm really good with people on the ground that want to get on. I'm pretty good with people that want provocation at senior level. Um, I really won't have no time to work with people who won't put themselves into it. It's a fault, I know. But, you know, if, if people are not going to give of themselves, then I probably don't bother with them. And I'm pretty honest about that now. I may have got to that age that you can be honest, but I, I think that's that's what you have to do, is to do everything you do represents the real you, not the one that you put on The Apprentice or in, you know, Dragon's Den or saying we're everything. You know, we're we're not all things to all people. Sensible HR people know that and they... They get the people that can do what they want and perhaps people can learn fast. I think that's where we're at at the moment. And that's really, I guess, what I do in my sort of courses on leadership and seminars and HR strategy and so on and so forth. So uh, um, I hate to use a catchphrase, but it really is keep it real if you want a personal brand, whatever that means. Peter, that's, that's grand. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I'm very grateful to Peter Cook, the well-known author and guru on innovation and creativity, for taking the time to talk to me on my podcast today. Peter, thanks. There's a man who's well worth checking out. Peter has also written a number of books, five in fact, on business and creativity, the latest of which, The Music of Business, Business Excellence, Fused with Music, is outstandingly good reading. But he's also written Sex, Leadership and Rock and Roll, Leadership Lessons from the Academy of Rock, He's also talked about punk rock, people management, a no-nonsense guide to hiring, inspiring and firing staff, which is available on free download, and you'll find the link to that on the link for this podcast. And he's also written Managing Healthcare and Life Sciences Businesses, an MBA book. There is a multi-talented guy. I would really advise you to have a look at some of his excellent writings. Thank you again, Peter. And finally, on today's programme. In this, the final segment of my podcast, I'm going to be talking about reward in the Middle East. And I'm very grateful for the uh, blog called Compensation Insider, published by my friend Sandrine, which is all about uh, reward in the Middle East. First of all, I think it's fair to say that the Middle East labour market, and particularly for executives, is similar to the type of labour market we saw in Western Europe probably 10-15 years ago. It's hot. There's a lot going on. There is more demand than supply, and salaries and benefits are, are going up quite rapidly. For example, the expected salary increases in the region for the next 12 months are at around about 5%. And a recent survey showed that 33% of people receiving bonuses in this region were expecting them to increase. And attrition is rising currently at about 6.5%, which is always a good sign of a heating up labour market. The Compensation Insider blog reported on a number of uh, compensation benefit conferences going on in the region. And a clear theme in these uh, conferences was the employers are are trying to seek greater control on remuneration packages in the face of growing demand, 
it's about cost effectiveness and bang for the buck. Not dissimilar to what we're seeing in the UK and the US, but perhaps at a much higher level. In Africa, it has been reported that reward is rising faster than surveys can keep up. And of course the question is always going to be one of where do we get the qualified ta uh, talent from? Do we import it? Do we grow our own? Do we develop from inside? These are key questions in a continent that's growing rapidly, but at the same time doesn't have the talent to support the requirements of the infrastructure. Another couple of issues uh, appeared during these various compensation benefit conferences. The first one, and I think it's one most of my listeners will be familiar with, is the first mover advantage. The question is, do you pay more for your cutting edge talent and risk being outside or above the market, or are you a follower, constantly behind, constantly chasing, and at the risk of higher attrition as you lose your best people? It's a real business quandary. Do we pay the extra bucks for the talent, or do we wait behind and pick up what's left? Difficult question. The second point, and I think it's a very, very powerful one, and it's a point that I've made a number of times in different contexts, is that Africa is not one country. It is several countries, many different countries, with different approaches, different cultures, different hiring approaches, and different remuneration structures. And dealing with Africa as one single region is not the best way to get the best bang for your buck and achieve business penetration. The people on the ground know how their companies are run and local expertise is very much in demand and should be used to reflect and reframe the remuneration packages in the area so that they are appropriate, legal and within the normal risk appetites of companies investing in that area. Let's move on to another country in the emerging markets area and that's Iraq. The major issue in the reward conferences was the lack of local skills. There's a huge workforce in Iraq, but it is unfortunately not highly skilled. Companies have to grow uh, their local organisations through a mixture of unskilled locals being upskilled and expert expats coming in, as it were, to lead the way. This is a very difficult environment. It's not particularly friendly. and Some would describe it as hostile. Certainly when I was working uh, with people in this region, expats in this region, the hardship allowance for this area was quite high. There are major security concerns and there must be a very high awareness of uh, religious and cultural issues in Iraq to ensure proper assimilation of the workforce. I found it interesting that there was a key theme appearing throughout the conferences and that was healthcare and particularly the rising cost of healthcare. In the Middle East we are seeing 15 to 20% of payroll being used to provide healthcare benefits and there's a major trend to see about mitigation of costs across the region be it by some form of self-insurance or excess and so on. So it's a very interesting issue to be discussed in the Middle East because healthcare is of course very very important in that environment and is an expected benefit both by local employees and by expats. So I think we're going to see some new developments coming out of that area very soon. And it may be something that we in the Western world can learn from, because again, healthcare benefits in the UK and Europe are getting more and more expensive, and more and more in demand as, for example, in the UK, the UK's National Health Service, which provides primary care, is falling apart, and getting good, reliable care is getting more and more difficult. And when you want your key employees fit and healthy and back to work, unfortunately the private route appears to be the best one. The final part of this segment on what's going on in the Middle East is the very great similarities 
between uh, compensation and benefit themes in the Middle East and in Europe. For example, broad communication and brand alignment was very high on the list of topics being discussed on the various reward conferences in the area. Um, and that's exactly the issue we have in the US and the UK. Getting our brand right and our employee proposition and communicating it is key to success. We're also seeing an increasing use of social media, be it Twitter, be it Facebook, be it YouTube. It's a way of getting our message across to external and internal stakeholders. And I can see this becoming an increasing issue. Strategy and the cost of international assignment, again, is a common theme almost across the world now. International assignments are very expensive and developing them it's necessary to have a, a good appropriate strategy in place. Why do you want to send an expat out to the country? Can you do the same job in the same way from the host country or can you upskill someone who's working in the country or recruit somebody for that matter? Uh, the days are gone when we just used to automatically give people overseas assignments as an award for long service or for good service or whatever. It has to be part of a very carefully uh, crafted uh, policy on how we deal with people, on our strategy, on our talent approach and, of course, on business necessity. Finally, there's the strong message about the necessity to integrate with talent management. We have to have the right people in the right place paid at the right amount. So reward and talent management really have got to get their acts together and work together to give the biggest and best bang for the buck for our organisations, be they locally based or be they uh, expat or overseas organisations. We have to think carefully, rationally and in a strategic fashion about who we want where and how we're rewarding them. It's not good enough just to throw bodies at a problem these days. We have to think ahead, we have to think about development and we have to think about the markets we're operating and how they're changing and what we're going to need in the future. Bringing those two together is an incredibly powerful tool and getting it right will give competitive advantage. In Davidson, there is no alternative. That brings an end to my review of what's happening in reward in the Middle East and beyond. And again, my thanks to Compensation Insider for the information on which I based much of this podcast. It's now time now for a few closing comments. I suppose the major message that we're seeing at the moment is that problems in compensation and benefits are the same as they've always been. The problem is that they are now much more visible and attracting much more political and media interest, much of it ill-informed and ill-considered. But that's something we've always had to deal with, particularly when we're looking at executive reward. Management of stakeholders is key. It doesn't matter whether the regulators, politicians shareholder advocacy groups, shareholders themselves, executives, employees or customers. They all have to be managed. We have to use our communications to the best advantage, to set expectations and to set explanation. Social media is going to help us to do this. There is always a danger, however, of simplifying the message. Let's get our heads around this. Reward is complex, be it the hourly paid of someone on a production line or the pay of a CEO. It's not straightforward. It's not simple, it's not easy, it's not mathematics, it's not psychology. It's a mixture of all those disciplines. And what we have to do is work to make sure that we understand what we're doing and then explain it, as I said before, to the many stakeholders who are getting involved these days. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast and a very big thank you to the innovation and creative guru Peter Cook for that fascinating and enlightening interview. 
don't forget, you can find a lot of information about what I've talked about on my website, which is iandavidson.me. And also, you'll see occasional Twitter feeds from me at Ian and MJ. Do get in touch if you have any questions. And if you would like to be interviewed on my, one of my programmes, or, for that matter, interview me, please don't hesitate to get in touch at iDavidson at Mauritius, M-A-U-R-I-T-I-U-S, dot demon, dot co, dot uk. And I'd be very glad to hear from you. Have a good day now. That was Views Over the City, produced and presented by Ian Davidson.